So this is Romans chapter 6, and I'm reading um, verses 1 through 14. The word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For no one who has died has been set, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So that you, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For all sin, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The word of the Lord. So Paul's main point here, he's gone through the whole, justified by faith alone. You're declared righteous, not by works, not by anything within us, but by the work of Christ received by us by faith alone. Righteous before God. You have now been reconciled to God, apart from works. And if we are preaching the gospel properly in this way, if we're preaching justification by faith alone in the right way, it should cause us or other people to ask the question or to say, wait a minute, it sounds like you're saying it doesn't matter what we do, that, that if you have faith, that you're, you're saved. And it's like, right, that's what I'm saying. But you're acting like it doesn't matter what we do. I didn't exactly say that, but it doesn't matter what we do as far as being saved. We've been justified by Christ. We're righteous by faith alone. You can't add anything to that. What are you talking about? But Paul's main point is we have died to sin, and therefore we will not continue in sin. That's his main point. So you might look at your own life and say, that doesn't maybe feel like my personal experience. So we'd say, with Paul, you know, how did we die to sin? And he says it's in our union with Christ. In his death to sin and in his life to God. When he died, we died in him. When he was resurrected, we were resurrected with him. He now walks in, in newness of life before God. Therefore, that's where we are. You, aren't just, you don't just get into the kingdom by being united to him in his death. You also are united to him in his resurrection. You're united to Christ. And what Paul does in this, he's like, just look at your baptism. So we're going we're to have to take a, a moment to talk about mode of baptism because this is one of those passages that um, Baptists tend to go to to say, look here, this is why you've got to go, you know, plunge them under and pull them up, you know, because, you know, it's important um, 
to the way a lot of people think. But that does not really have much to do with if it wasn't for that. If there weren't a group of people teaching that that's how it has to be done, that's um, making us think, gosh, we don't baptize like that. Maybe we're wrong. So we kind of have to address that. But if it wasn't for that, this wouldn't have anything to do with mode of baptism, how somebody is baptized. It's just that you know, and he's talking to the Romans like, you know what baptism is. You've all been baptized. You're in the church. You can't be a member of the church without having been baptized. And when you're baptized, you're baptized in union with Christ. You guys know that. There's other things going on in baptism, but he's just talking about this one thing. So if you've been baptized into union with Christ, and we use that phrase sort of um, culturally too, uh, baptism by fire means you've all gone through the same experience together and it unites you. Uh, the movie, you know, it's a band of brothers type things. You know, they're, they've been put through this terrible experience together and therefore they're banded together as brothers. We've gone through this experience with Christ. We're united to him with Christ. We've been baptized into Christ. We've been baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Bible talks about being baptized into Moses when they went through the, the parting of the Red Sea, the experience. They were all represented in Moses. So this is what he's talking about. But what Paul wants us to see is you're united to Christ. And what does that have to do with being charged with saying it doesn't matter how you live, that we're saying it's okay to sin. As if what Christ did, and this is one of Paul's points, as if what Paul did, what Christ did, was to die so that you could live in sin. I mean, that's, he came to destroy the works of the devil. So we have to be careful how we think about it. And this can be indeed, I want to use the word tricky, that's not a good word, it can be, kind of, it can be complicated it can be tricky to see exactly what Paul's talking about because of the categories we use in our mind when we think about what it means to be dead to sin. Because I think a lot of times when we think about what it means, if I'm dead to sin, what I might think or what you may think that means is I don't sin anymore. I'm dead to it. Because if you're dead to something, you know, we'll use that, you know, see movies where people have said that, you're dead to me, that person is dead to me. You know, it's like I have nothing to do with them anymore. That's it. And so it's a similar part of the thought, but that's not exactly Paul's thought. But what he is saying is we have died to sin, therefore we will not continue in it because we are united to Christ in his death and in his life that we might walk in newness of life. That's the point. That's what he's saying in all this stuff is that Paul is answering the charge, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Because guess what happens when you do sin? In which he has said, grace abounds. It is greater than judgment. You have judgment and you have grace. Grace always wins. And we've seen that in what Paul has been saying. So it certainly can sound like, well, let's just sin more and then we get more grace. Because that's what happens. But it's the indication that something's wrong in your heart. You know, don't use your, your newfound grace as a thinly veiled excuse for sin. You, you come to Christ like somebody that would come to Christ so I can get away with my sinning now and still go to heaven. It's like, brother, I don't think you, you, we have the same Christ. I don't think we have the same gospel. I don't think you understand exactly what's happening here. And then there's many people who believe and many churches that believe and, and teach that, that if you preach and teach grace to people, justification by faith alone, that you're freed from death and sin in Christ alone, that by faith you're forgiven and declared righteous apart from works. If you teach people that, 
everybody's just going to go sin all the time. Especially teenagers. Oh, man, you've got you to hammer the law on teenagers because if you don't hammer the law on teenagers, you know what they're going to do. So hammer the law on them, and to which you should, if you're a, a true believer, you have to kind of ask yourself, you know, is that how you've grown in Christ? Is through the law being hammered on you? The, the weight of your sin coming upon you and it, people come around and continuing to point and hammer away at it and so you just feel worse and worse and worse and understand that unless I do better, I am not in Christ. Unless I do better, I'm not a good Christian. Unless I do better, God's not going to love me. Unless I do better, that's law. And what Paul is, is saying to us is, that's not how you came to know Christ, if indeed you know Christ. And so, what motivates us to change and what enables us to change? The believer, now a sinner, somebody who's not regenerate, somebody who doesn't truly have the Spirit of Christ, somebody who's not truly been born again, they might use the law in all kinds of ways. They might use the idea of grace in all kinds of ways. You mean to tell me that I can go out here and do anything I want to do and still go to heaven? You know, I mean, at that point, you got to say, well, thank goodness God did institute civil law out there, so we have police and things happening. But you got to understand, and we have to be able to preach the gospel to our children, to ourselves. You know, what is it in Christ, in the gospel, that makes us as believers want to cling to Christ? That makes us want to flee to him in times of trouble. That makes us want to confess our sin to him when we fall short. That doesn't make us say, I'm just going to be as bad as I want to be. Now, we all probably have been able to use and recognize in our own hearts at times the reason we've allowed ourselves particular leeway in certain areas of sin that we know we need to confess, that we need, we need to abandon is, well, God's going to forgive me anyway. I am saved. I do have grace. And then that leads you to do a little more wrong than you might normally do. So Paul is like addressing this. So he's got two audiences. One is those outside there that don't get the gospel they're not understanding, and they're saying like, man, you're just saying you sin so that grace can abound. And then you got people who are in church going like, I don't want to sin, so that, but thank God grace abounds. What do we do? Who will release me from this wretched body of death? So it's better to teach salvation by the free gift of God by faith alone, but if you want to stay in, as some people might would think, your state of salvation, you better do good. So we have to be careful that we don't say things like that. And Paul says that's not how people change at all. But if we follow Paul and understand what he's saying, we'll see how the grace of God is the only way to become more Christ-like. It's the only motivation for doing so. Um, the only motivation for doing so is a changed heart wrought by the Holy Spirit. So we are to preach the gospel of grace about the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins and his resurrection on the third day for us. Salvation as a, as a substitute for us and for our children. Paul is going to call us to holiness, but not by threats. And he's only talking to believers in Christ by faith. He calls the world to holiness, but the world needs to understand that without Christ, this is not possible. The first step is trusting and crying out to Christ for help, for salvation. 
And what we'll see here in theology, there's a saying, the imperatives are grounded in the indicatives. I just like the way the word indicative sounds. I like to use it sometimes. The imperatives are grounded in the indicatives. And if something is indicative, what that means is it indicates something. It says this is a truth. In other words, he's saying the commands are always based on truths. If God's going to tell you to do something, he's going to say, do it. Do this thing because this thing is true. He never says, uh, just do this thing without telling you why or what we should believe. Um, so this is what Paul is telling us, that what is the truth that Paul is reminding us or telling us about in order for us to pursue holiness? Because it's not the threat of punishment for wrongdoing. Because he starts off with the fact that we are dead to sin. And so we have to, an interesting thing is that as a church, um, as, now, there have been several people that will, this is what happens. If you start to talk about righteousness, holiness, if you start to talk about anything that smacks of traditionalism, if you start to look like you are trying to, just the pursuit of holiness opens you to the charge of legalism. The pursuit of righteousness opens you to the charge of legalism. And so you have to be very careful of that charge of legalism because legalism means a particular thing. Legalism means I am using the law, behavior, I am, I am, I am doing, trying to do good works to obtain salvation. I'm trying to do good works to get in good with God. I'm trying to do good works to earn favor from God. That's what legalism is. Then the opposite of that is you can also be accused of this if you, if they, if, people who begin to see that you're talking a little too much about grace, you seem to be talking a little bit, starts to sound like you're saying it doesn't matter what you do, you can still be saved, that you don't care about the law at all, then what that sounds like is they'll say you're antinomian. And you know that somebody accuses you of that, they've been, they've been reading too much. So it just means that they're antinomos, no law. You're saying the law has no place in a believer's life. There's no place for it. And, then, and both of those are, are wrong condemned categories in the gospel. And so we had to be careful of this. So we don't want to say your standing in righteousness and salvation is based on works, but we also don't want to say God could care less what you do. You're, you're in Christ, you're saved, and go rob, steal, murder, kill, rob banks, cheat on your tests. I don't care. I love you in Christ. You know, some people teach that about the whole world doesn't matter whether you're in Christ or not. But that's what antinomian is, doesn't matter. Legalism is, it's about the only thing that matters. And as a church, we don't believe that. But there are going to be texts that you're going to come up against that are going to make you feel like one of those other things are being stressed. But what Paul is saying here is, what about your pursuit of righteousness? What about your pursuit of holiness? What about trying to be more Christ-like? How does that work? Is that anything that we're supposed to, to attempt to? How does it work? So he says, what shall we say then in verse 1? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so he's just making a logical little statement here. It's like if we have, <clears throat> excuse me, how can we who died to sin still live in it? You're dead to it. You've died to it. And then you're saying, well, you're going to live in it? So if we're teaching you're dead in Christ, Christ died to sin, but it's okay to still live in it. It's like, oh, wait a second, Christ didn't die so that you could just continue to 
get away with everything that you're trying to get away with so you can be worse people. That's not why he did this. Do you not know, he says, and the answer to this as he's written is like, you know this. Don't you know this? You know this, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that, so this is the reason that happened, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, which is a very interesting little phrase that's stuck. It's the only place in the Bible you see that Christ was raised by the glory of the Father. What The glory is this manifestation of all his attributes. Everything there is about God just sort of manifests in some way. In the resurrection of Christ, the glory of the Father is what resurrected Christ. And so we see in other places, and maybe we'll touch on it this morning, your resurrection, your new birth, is from the glory of the Father. The glory of the Father. Because in Christ, he was able to finally demonstrate his hatred and judgment over sin, but also his great mercy and grace that's also within him. So that he's able to be just and the justifier, as Paul has already said in Romans. And that's God's glory. So this is not something that God's like saying, hey, I got a lot of things going on, but let's do this thing, Jesus. What do you think about this? Let's save these guys too. Not bad. Let's go do that. So they do that and they go on and say, okay, what else you got? It's like, no, this is raised by the glory of the Father. What God is doing in the church. Why did he create anything? We, we kind of act, we know God created everything, but we sort of, in our logical mind, sometimes act as if, you know, there is everything. God's sort of floating around out there all lonely, you know, and then he's got to create it. I've been taught this when I was little. Why did God create you? Because he's lonely. He needed somebody to love. Like, I was being taught heresy. That's, that's, that's not Trinitarian theology. God's in a perfect relationship with himself at all times. He didn't need to create us, but he did for his own glory to manifest different attributes of himself so that the Father can glorify the Son, the, glor- the Son can glorify the Father. All these things are being able to happen to the glory of God. Our very creation, our fall, our redemption, the whole thing abounds to the glory of God, the glory of God the Father in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. What has happened in you, believer, is because of the glory of the Father. It is a miraculous and amazing thing. And how it happened was God the Son becomes man, representing us again as Adam did, and then going to the cross and saying that you can be united to me by faith, by Holy Spirit baptism. The Holy Spirit has to do something in your heart. And that's what water baptism represents, is what the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit applies the work of Jesus Christ to us. So the Lord's Supper is not a recreation of the sacrifice of Christ. That's what the the Roman Catholic Church will do that. It's a it's an altar we're coming to. And we'll talk about come to the altar. We use, I think we use our language a little loosely. We give a sacrifice of praise indeed, but we don't have an altar here. The reformers were very careful not to let this look like an altar. It's, looked, it's a table. We're coming to the table of Christ. It's to look like a meal, like a supper. You're coming to the table. You're not going to re-sacrifice Christ. 
the benefits of Christ's sacrifice are given to us in the supper. Okay, you kind of get this. The benefits are given to us in the supper because the supper is a sign and seal of the work of Jesus Christ, which we receive by faith in the hearing and in responding to the gospel. It's a visible representation and preaching of the gospel. The benefits of Christ's sacrifice are given to us in the supper because he died for us and lives with us today by his spirit, but his spirit is present with us at the table as he gives himself to us. So this is what's happening. We're not re-sacrificing Christ. He's been sacrificed once for all, and now the benefits of that sacrifice are being given to us as we listen to the word preached as we come to the table and that is signed and signified. So in baptism, also the same thing. It is not a recreation of Christ's death. And you know, I'm trying to, I grew up Southern Baptist, so I know a lot of these things just from, from growing up in it, but I was reading a few things to make sure I'm not misrepresenting people. But one of the things to understand about the Baptist churches, they are each independent congregations, and so they can have different variations on how they believe certain things. But this verse is used quite frequently in you died to sin and you raised to new life. Um, someone said that I was reading that the death of Jesus was violent, therefore the person is plunged beneath the waters in a violent plunging into death. It's like, okay, but you, know, you, don't, you don't see that in the scriptures, but this is what people, that you're, you're, you're adding these things, but baptism isn't that recreation of Christ's death but it's the Holy Spirit signing and sealing of the benefits of Christ's death to us who are united to him by faith. So we're being united to him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it's the body of Christ died for us, his blood shed for us, his actual body and blood. We're not doing it again here, but it's being applied to us. His death being applied to us for our benefit in life with baptism, it's the Holy Spirit uniting us to the work of Christ in his life, death. It's the work of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon us, our hearts being sprinkled by his Spirit, and our bodies washed by the Spirit. So all of these things by the operation of the Holy Spirit. Baptism represents regeneration and cleansing by the Holy Spirit as a promise from God for those who believe. And the part of that, of the, that part of symbolism is what Paul is using to say you are united to Christ, that we are united in his death and resurrection. Baptism does not, as many Baptists say, dramatize the work of Jesus. Baptism symbolizes and seals the work of the Holy Spirit of Christ in our total salvation and union with him. But all of this about mode and how this happens is not Paul's point. Nowhere in Romans or anywhere else in the New Testament does the motion of the person being baptized ever have anything to do with what's happening. So we have to be very careful with what he's saying so that we can get his point, which is, do you not know that you were baptized into Christ? And when you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his death. That's how he's able to say you've died to sin. It doesn't mean I don't sin anymore. It means you've been baptized into his death. And the death he died, he died to sin. Therefore, you did too. And now you've been resurrected to new life. And so if we look at um, 
the end of verse 4, he says, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, this judicial death on, of, of death and sin, so that we too might walk in newness of life. So Jesus wasn't just raised, and it's like, okay, but Jesus raised and walked and still lives and walks and lives now to the glory of God the Father. And there we are with him at the right hand of God, hidden in him, covenantally in him, but it has some Thing to do with the way we are to walk. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So that baptism, you know, it's Holy Spirit applying the blood of Christ, the death of Christ to us. We, we, we're dead with Christ. But Christ isn't dead. Christ is alive. Therefore, if you're united to Christ, you are alive too. We certainly shall be reunited with him in a resurrection like his, which was done by the glory of the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that's at work in, in Christ to raise him from the dead. It said in the Bible that that's the power at work in you. I think we make too big of a deal, I think, at some times of saying, yeah, we're all sinners, we're going to sin. You know, as if, you know, we're just, it's an excuse we use not to try to live better lives. You don't want to be a legalist, but don't be an antinomian. Don't act like the Holy Spirit has no power in you. Hopefully, over time, if you've lived as a Christian for very long, you've seen sin, and you've repented of it, and you've seen Christ do something, and you've seen yourself be able to grow. But, you know, the example I use a lot is you understand God's holiness is here, and you think, you know, you're about right here, and so, you know, you, you need his salvation, so he saves you, and then, you know, you do a little better then. You know, you'll never quite attain holiness. And then you understand, my goodness, uh, my sin is worse than I thought. And then, oh my goodness, his holiness is greater than I thought. Oh my goodness, sin is worse. His holiness is more. And the more you live your Christian life, the worse you understand sin to be and the more you understand holiness to be. And so you can be like, I'm getting worse. And you give up. <clears throat> Rather than seeing, man, how great is the gospel of grace that came to sinners such as I. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, and, and maybe what the Holy Spirit will do in your life is continue to show you, you, you know, the whole thing. You are a lot worse than you think you are. <laughs> Therefore, understand better my grace. But he doesn't do that so you can then say, well, I'm just going to do worse and worse. Because look how great grace is. That's not how grace works in your life, in the life of a believer. Grace is going to operate in such a way that it's going to make you more Christ-like. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not just something that he says, like, ah, don't worry about it. Like, you get pulled by, for speeding, and the, the highway patrolman just comes up to you and says, ah, don't worry about it, you know, and even hands out money to you. You know, it's like, you know what you're going to do. You know, that cop's out there handing out $100 bills. You know, well, let's go speeding. You know, it's like, that's not how grace operates. That's not how the Holy Spirit operates. There's a change that takes place in our hearts that is operative, in baptism, through, the, through what we see in baptism, what we see in the Lord's Supper is this grace stuff, this gospel stuff is applied to us. It is operative in us. It's not just things that you have to kind of say, I get it, that's cool, I, I, I'll buy into that philosophy. Oh, no, 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 no. You are baptized into that life of Christ as a believer. You're that vitally united to him. And in verse 6, our old self, it's the old man in the original language, was crucified with him. So if you want to symbolize the sinner's death, the believer's death with Christ, it's a crucifixion. That's how we've been killed 
That's where we receive our death is in the crucifixion with him. So if you ever see anything where it's, a, you know, you're thinking about the crucifixion of Christ or you're up there on that cross when he was there, that's when you died with him mystically was when he died. In order that the body of sin, that can also be read as the sinful body, might be brought to nothing. So you, so you got to get whatever body of sin, sinful body means, it's the old self because it's in parallelism here. So that old self, uh, elsewhere he calls it the, um, the, the, the record of ordinances, the record of things that are against you by law has been nailed to the cross. So your old self has been nailed to the cross. It's been crucified with Christ in order that that body of sin might be, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. No longer, so that means non-believers, enslaved to sin. Augustine had this example, analogy he used of a, of a horse with a rider. And you're the horse. Satan is the rider. And he's the one. He pulls you to go right, you go right. Left, you go left. Then Christ comes. And then this is where I think his analogy breaks down a little bit. Because now Christ is the rider. But Satan doesn't quite let go of the reins. And I think, okay, but you took it too far. I think the problem is the horse. The horse has Christ now as, like, as our guidance, but we still kind of out there looking for that other rider we used to have because we still enjoy going into some of those other places we used to go. And he's like, don't do that. What are you, what are you doing? What are you thinking? That's, that's terrible stuff. You don't want to do that. You, if you, if, when we sin, it's because we don't understand the, the heinousness, the sinfulness of sin. We're still buying into the lie that the flesh, the body called, the, 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 the word calls it, is the, these internal desires that seek our obedience. If you tell a slave, if you would find somebody living in slavery, and you say, quit living like a slave, you can't do that. But if somebody's been set free, quit living like a slave is a good thing to tell them. But how hard and difficult it is. There's a song I like that says, I can never entertain the thought that things were better back in Egypt. And that's what they did. They were crying out because they were being killed in slavery. And then God saves them in a desert where it ain't so easy. And what they remember are the good things. And I want to go back to the good things. I mean, I've done that kind of thing with a job. I mean, you ever had a job that you hated <laughs> and loathed? Certain things about it. And then you get out of it, and then a few years later, you start missing it, and you had to remind yourself of the reason you left it, you know, because you can tend just to remember the good things, you know. So you got to be careful with that, because the good things in our old life were not good things. We felt like they were good things. We believed them to be good things. Our psychology started setting it up and telling itself, this is a good thing, this is a good thing, this is a good thing, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And it's like, nope, I'm done with that. That thing still talks to us. Flesh and blood won't inherit the kingdom of God, but only unless we die and it's sowed to immortality and we get new bodies, we get, are done with this sin and death. But that death we died, crucified with Christ, is what he's calling us to, so that we will no longer be, in, we're not to be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. He's saying, you've died to sin, you've been set free from it. And that's interesting. Now, here we go. Seven, oh, sorry, eight. Now, if we had died, and he's saying we have, died with Christ, 
we believe that we will also live with him. He's not the first time he's made this point in these verses. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. So death no longer has dominion over him. And if you skip to verse 14, it also says, therefore sin will have no dominion over you. So he's making this same analogy. Just as Christ is alive and death has no hold over him, you're in Christ, so he's no longer under dominion. Matter of fact, Romans 1.18 calls Christ, he says, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death in Hades. That's the authority over that. And what he's saying to us is, you also live. You also have died to sin, and it will have no dominion over you. Sin has no dominion over you that you don't give it. And this is what he's saying. And that's not me. This is the word of God. Verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, it's that parallelism. The death he died to sin once for all, for all who are in him. The life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider. Now he's got something for you to do. All this stuff is true. You're dead to sin. And if you come to me and you say, I'm I'm not dead to sin, I'll say, well, then you're saying you're not a believer. Because Paul says you're dead to sin. you got to figure out what that means. And that means legally, covenantally, in Christ, in the Father, you're dead to that sin. That sin has no power over you. It's like you're a slave and you've been set free. Don't let the master rule over you anymore because he's just a bunch of blowhard air. The only reason you're obeying your old master is because you're either afraid or you like it there. Don't do that. Consider, this is now, this is the imperative. You're being told to do something based on all this indicative stuff, based on all this stuff that's been told to you that is true in Christ. Therefore, here's what Paul says to us. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's how you're supposed to think about yourself. I'm dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. Now, be careful. This isn't just some game you play with yourself where you're just like, I'll just act like this. I'll, I'll, I'll fake it till I make it. He's like, no, know who you are. Know where you are. Know how you are, whose you are, and what this supper means that we're going to come to, that we're in Christ. But consider yourself. Think about yourself in this way. He's like, this is how you're going to grow in grace. Think about yourself as, as dead to sin, but you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Then he says, so let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So there's some way in which we can let sin reign so that sin then does make us obey its passions. And then in verse 13, he says, do not present your members to sin, your body parts, your hands, your eyes, your nose, your mind, your thoughts. Your de- Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves, and that's your whole, your whole self, your mind, your soul, your body, all that I am, all that I have, all that is me, present that to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You were saved from, I've, I remember now in seminary, a guy gave an example, probably on this passage, you've been crucified with Christ, you're dead. But we how he said it, you know, but we like to, we still carry around that body of death. Like you got a corpse on your back. It's stinking, it's awful, and it's bad, and if that's what you want to serve, that's what you're going to do, but you've got to consider yourself to be dead to that. Let it go. Get rid of it. 
you have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So don't present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present it to God for instruments of righteousness because sin will have no dominion over you. And this is that, it's a future tense thing, that sin will have no dominion over you. And Greek uses that to say, this is a true thing. Sin will have no dominion over you. It's like, it doesn't have dominion over you unless you give it that dominion. And you can give sin such a dominion over time that you feel like you're a slave to it and there's nothing I can do. Then you preach the gospel. Understand who you are in Christ. You're dead to sin, alive to Christ, and present your body to God. Quit presenting the members of your body, yourselves, to sin, to serve its desires, and present yourself to God as instruments for righteousness. For you will have no, sin will have no dominion over you, since, because, why? Because you're not under law, you're under grace. Counter to the way the world works. That doesn't make any sense. Humanly. Sin doesn't have dominion over you because you're not under law. So I go speeding down the road and the policeman pulls me over. I show my ambassador card. Your laws have no authority over me. Leave. But I'm driving a thousand miles down the highway. How stupid am I? You know, it's just like the law isn't what's going to change us. The law does point us to the heart of God in Christ. The law does tell us that there are things that God loves. Love the Lord thy God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in these two things, you'll fulfill all the law's commands. It's love. And how do we love? Have no gods before me. Don't worship with idols. Don't take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. How do you love people? You don't murder them. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. You honor your parents. You don't commit adultery. You don't steal from people. You don't, you don't um, lie on people. You don't, you don't covet things they have. You don't, you don't desire their stuff. Let them have it. But think the most. To give. You know, this is how you love your neighbor, and this is how you love God. That's the fulfilling of the law. And it can only happen if you're gracious, and you have grace, and you understand the grace of God. And the reason sin, if we can understand, what Paul is saying, I can't even say I get it completely. But what he is saying is, if you can understand who you are in Christ, and if you can understand the grace of God, and that you're not under law, then sin will have no dominion over you. And that's how we begin to live more Christ-like lives. Now, what we do with this, as we leave from here, is probably going to be legalistic on one hand, where we're like, i got to do better. I gotta do, and it can drive you crazy. Because now I've identified sin in my life and I know I don't have to live in it and I do and now you're adding more burden to me. Because now not only not only am I dead, not only do I still sin, but now I realize I have grace and I don't have to, and I'm supposed to die to it, and you've you've added more burden on me. And what God is saying is, what Paul is saying here is understand what God has done for you in Christ Jesus and rest in it. Rest in it. Believe in the gospel. Believe that you have reconciliation with the Father. And then as the, if you need to be more Christ-like, which you do, God will do that in different ways. And when you see that coming, and no discipline is present at the time, but once it's done its work, it has the fruit of righteousness produces peace. And so we know that what God wants for us is our good, our peace. Because he sent his son to die for us. And he gives himself 
for us here on the table. So what we have to do for the rest of our lives here in this earth is figure out what is this glorious grace of God in Christ Jesus for us. And we try to, to live that out. And we need one another to do that. And that's why he puts us in a body with other believers. And he also gives us this Lord's Supper to be able to say, I am with you to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for all that's ours. Thank you for this table. Thank you for this meal, this time. Thank you for your grace. We pray that you would apply it to our lives more so that we might know you better. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.